All right. Anybody, uh, anybody enjoy a football game yesterday? Anybody not enjoy a football game yesterday? <laughs> Yikes, yeah. I've got two friends who are 49ers fans. It was a great day for them, they said. They really enjoyed it. Um, that's the way it goes, though. Hey, so we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians here today, uh, and I'm excited for that and grateful for another chance to be with you in the Lord's Word today. Um, really quickly, you know, just wanting to stay in focus on where we're at in Corinthians. So chapters 12 through 14 are about spiritual gifts, but you might remember the, the first thing that we talked about is that this is not really just about the spiritual gifts. Some translations say concerning the spiritual gifts, but Paul kicks off the whole section way back in chapter 12. And he says, now concerning the spiritual things or the spiritual ones, the spiritual concepts. And so Paul is talking not just about the application and use of your gifts and what gifts you have, but the spiritual life in you, how that's occurring, what the Lord is doing in you. So this is kind of a big concept, these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. Uh, and we don't want to just take them in little bits, but instead build an understanding as we go through the whole thing. Uh, and so we talk about way in November, the big idea of the message is that the Holy Spirit wants you off the bench, out of the balcony, on his team, and in the game. Uh, and I'm so thankful for us to know that. I hope you know that, that the Holy Spirit has work he wants to do in your life. He wants to use you for God's glory in God's kingdom in the ways that he has built you and equipped you uniquely to work. Uh, you are a vital member of his team, and it's important for you to know that and understand that, to embrace that, and then to live into that in an increasing basis. Uh, I'm really excited for the, the history or the heritage of that in this church and what God is doing in our midst. Um, many of you were here way back when my wife and I started here almost 10 years ago um, as the pastor and, and her just supporting uh, me and many ministries along the way. And one of the things that astounded us as we came to this church is how many people were involved in the day-to-day -day life and ministry of this church. And then when you expanded that a little further to see so many brothers and sisters in Christ serving in this community. So when we arrived, I think there were almost, almost 70 people in this church body who uh, were committed to and participating in children's ministry through our midweek program that we had at that time and Sunday morning kids ministry and youth ministry. That's an impressive number. That was about half of our church family. And then if you expanded that outward and looked elsewhere, somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of this church body was connected in regularly serving others with their time, with their talents, with their gifts. That's an impressive thing. That's very abnormal. Um, I'm excited that that's still going on and again, regrowing and resuming after COVID. During COVID, a lot of people kind of drew in and commitments were canceled and postponed. And it's sort of like getting unsick, right? You sort of have to get back into the routine. And I see so many of us pressing back into those routines, stepping out boldly into places of service, taking risks. Uh, that really matters. And it's a demonstration to the world of the love of Jesus, both in our midst and in the community. Um, kind of today, we had an invitation to be a part of that, right? Marcus said, hey, in the foyer, there's the wheel of service opportunities, right? And if you think about that, each of those service opportunities is a wheel of love. You know, think about it like this. Let's say you take a tag to make a main course or a dessert or whatever. Uh, when you do that, you're not just bringing food, right? You're, you're demonstrating the love of Jesus to those in this church family. And the truth is, you don't know who's going to take a scoop of that macaroni and cheese or that, you know, smoked brisket, hint, hint, you know, nothing, you know, uh, there, you know, there's, you don't know how that meal is going to impact somebody next Sunday. And so that as you take that, that act of service isn't just pulling a tag and taking a need. It's a way of practically demonstrating the love of Jesus. And I, I'm so thankful that this church body is into that, you know, that, that as we talk about this, it's priming the pump, not starting the fire. And I'm, I'm really glad for that. Uh, and I'm thankful for each of you that do that sort of thing, because it, it makes a big difference. Uh, for some of you hearing about this, and you're like, maybe, maybe I should do that. That sounds like a good thing. And you know what? It, it would be. Um, and then last week, we talked about the fact that we are evidence of and an expression of Jesus to each other and to the world around us. That is, the church is unified around Christ, his love for us, his death and his resurrection as the means of gaining everlasting life and the faith that it takes to live that everlasting life on earth. That as we do that, as we're unified, as we use our gifts together, that we are an evidence of Jesus at work. I mean, let's be honest, most of us don't have everything in common with the people in this room. In fact, if we didn't know each other in Christ, we probably wouldn't even be friends. 
But because of our mutual faith, we have this bond of unity and love that pulls us together. And that unity and love that oversteps the normal boundaries that keeps humans from connecting and loving one another is absolutely evidence of Jesus' real work in our hearts, in our lives. Not only that, we're committed to maintaining unity. So we let go of the things that keep us from expressing that unity and holding on to that unity. We forgive, we forget, we move on. We step over, we press through because we see that Jesus has called us to a different form of unity than the unity that the world has. And when we do that, we're not just evidence, we're an expression of Jesus' love. How awesome is that to recognize that that is the case? I mean, instead of fighting for the things that we think are most important in the church and in the world, we work together to make God's priorities the reality for our church families and our own lives. I mean, where do you see that? Do you see that in politics? Is that what CNN is constantly reporting? And the Congress got together again and their fantastic agreement met with a short session and much rejoicing because of what God was going to do in our nation. No. How about school districts? No, no, not at all. How about family gatherings? It's just wonderful to see everybody, right? There's just so much commonality because you share the same blood. No, it's not found anywhere except right here with the people of God. How awesome is that, that you and I get to participate in that and be a part of not just participating in it, not just getting some of that, but producing that for those around us and future generations. That's really motivating for me as a pastor that we might be able to press into that as a church family. And today we're going to continue to explore these spiritual things. And as we do that, I just want you to understand that chapters 12 through 14 and talking about these spiritual matters are, are about spiritual gifts, are about your use of them, um, but even more than that, and in a greater way, are about your spiritual maturity. Paul is talking about growing into your own personal spiritual maturity and what a church can look like when a church becomes spiritually mature. Now, a spiritually mature church does not look like people who have all arrived. Believe it or not, that's a greatly spiritual, immature church, right? They've just become stagnant because they think that they've, they've made it. They crossed the finish line. And then what that does, that stagnancy means that new believers aren't coming in. The gospel isn't being shared. There's no room for other people to mature. And so this church that is pressing ahead to spiritual un- maturity uh, starts in this place of humility. We'll always be growing in this life, right? We're always going to be pressing forward into Christ more and more. I will not arrive at glory behind this veil of glory that I will not press through until Jesus comes back or takes me home. And so we become committed to spiritual growth as we move forward together. And so I just want you to keep that in mind, that this isn't just about the spiritual gifts. This is really about your spiritual growth individually, and then our spiritual growth as a church family together. All right, so that brings us up to the topic of today. Uh, How many of you like being an American? There's no guilt in that, by the way. It's okay to be grateful to be an American. Me too. Uh, My first grade teacher, Mrs. Neeser. In first grade, you didn't know your teachers had first names aside from Mrs., right? Uh, So Mrs. Neeser was... um, old school. She was probably a grandma. Um, Every day, I think she wore clothing that either she or a loved one made for her. So like denim dresses and vests and things like that. Always very cute, well put together. And every day she wore something patriotic. A scarf, a belt, a pin, a cute little hat or a brooch. Something that represented her love for America. And every day we had snack time in the morning and in the afternoon, but the morning snack time was more memorable because she would pull out an LP, uh, which for those of you who are under the age of me, uh, that's a record. It's made out of vinyl and it's how music used to come. And she would play patriotic songs, you know, like, from the halls of Monta. Zoom. Yeah, so you all know these songs, right? And then she would give a little devotion on how America was a unique and special nation on the face of the earth because of how God used it. How incredible is that, by the way? You know, that that probably doesn't happen too much in many classrooms anymore. But I remember thinking America is really special. And then as I grew up, I found out the facts behind those sentiments, right? And I remember when I first learned about the Declaration of Independence, 
know, that, that letter, that open letter to England and the rest of the world, announcing that we were going to be an independent nation, separating ourselves from Great Britain. And I remember the things, uh, the inalienable rights that every human has. Do you remember what those are? Life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we, we all know these things. How many of you are into those? I'm into life. And I'm really into liberty for the most part. And I find that I like being happy. Maybe you do too. And I'm glad that I live in a nation where it's told to me and everyone else that we have a right to pursue those things. You know, that somebody else can't hold us back in the midst of that pursuit. And yet at the same time, it strikes me as an adult that while we were escaping one form of tyranny, right, from a government that was oppressing the people who had moved to this land, we can find ourselves in another form of tyranny. Isn't it sad that in our pursuit of happiness, we can find paths to go down that we think that are going to lead us to happiness that actually there's nothing there. They're bankrupt. They're painful. Have you ever experienced that? Me too. And it's a bummer. But what amazes me is that God actually wants us to have life. God actually wants us to have liberty. And God is actually into our happiness. I mean, isn't it interesting that the Psalms say things like, delight yourself in the Lord and he will what? Give you the desires of your heart, right? Uh, Philippians is a book about what? Joy and rejoicing. Aren't these things fundamental to the human happiness? God wants our hearts to be happy and full and blessed, even, even when life doesn't bring those things to you. And that, that strikes me. And so Paul is talking to the Philippian church in one way, about happiness, about the good life, the way to get to the best life. See, the Philippian church had believed a lot of things about what it takes to be happy. It was a major metropolitan center a center of business and trade, but part of the Greek culture. Therefore, they were imbued and flooded with uh, the arts and philosophy and athleticism. And these were huge values of their culture. Uh, in terms of liberty, there wasn't a city that was more free than Corinth. And let me tell you, they embraced the life of liberty. I mean, they did everything to the extreme, to the point that it became a weakness. And if you lived in Corinth, you knew that it was a city that the liberty was pressed so hard that it became debauchery even. And if you were talking about something, who was, uh, something that was a Corinthian way or somebody who lived like a Corinthian, you were talking about somebody who drank to excess, worshipped to excess, did business to excess, and not in a good way. I heard one pastor talking about Corinth, and he said, you know when you're out in the woods and you lift up that log or that rock and you turn it over and there's all those slimy, crawly things? That's Corinth. You know, the culture just was not awesome because of how pressed in they were. And so Paul brought them the gospel, and they latched onto it, some of them. But the problem is, is they brought in their culture instead of continuing to follow Christ. And the culture was teaching them and leading them to think about life and the good things in life, the best things in life, in specific ways that were overshadowing Jesus' teaching and Jesus' discipleship. And they were even changing and transforming the church. That's kind of the opposite of the way that faith in Jesus is designed to work and that we're called to live, right? Like, it's supposed to be Christ forming us, Jesus transforming us, the gospel saving us. But too often, we end up with this sort of blend that theologians and sociologists called syncretism, where we mix in our culture and our heritage and Jesus, and we end up with this third way that doesn't really belong to either. And you know what? It doesn't really work out. And so the Corinthian church found themselves in trouble, a fair bit of trouble as a church family. Lots of things weren't working right. And one of those things was the use and understanding of spiritual gifts. And so Paul is leading them to know that. And he tells them, I want to give you an even better way than the way that you think that you know about. Even your understanding of the spiritual gifts when you're healthy, there's a better thing than just knowing your spiritual gift and when and how to use it. And that way is the way of love. And so today we're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13, uh, for part one of talking about a better 
way of life. And we're going to be talking about the pace of love and the pace of life that you live. So the pace of love in your life is an even better pace of life than any other pace of life that you can have, that you can pursue. Your pace of life is described and defined by your schedule, your thoughts, the meditations of your heart, what you do. Have you noticed that life has gotten incredibly busy in the 21st century? Can you believe how full your life is? When you think about the life of your parents when they were at your age and stage of life, was it this busy? Was it this full? Were they this unavailable? Were they this distracted? When I think about that, the answer is no, a big no. And I can't help but wonder if we've lost something here, if we haven't bought into a pursuit of happiness that actually can't give us what we're ultimately looking for and might be driving us towards something that we don't really want. And so today I want to talk to you about the pace of love that Jesus desires for you. It's a better pace. It calls you to push away, uh, get away from the pull and the push and the grind of life. And uh, as we do that, I want you to see that this is something that God's calling us to in his word, not just some sort of special revelation that I get when I put on my foil hat, which um, is really comfortable, by the way. I don't know if you have one too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in the word. Thank you that your word is living and active. I, I love and I fear that descriptor that you give us in Hebrews, Lord, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it works like a scalpel in our souls and our hearts, piercing and separating our actions from our motives, showing us what's really going on inside of us. And yet I'm thankful because you also say that your word is like a, a seed it enters in and it doesn't return void. It grows and it brings forth good fruit. And so we welcome your word and your truth today. And we ask, Lord, that you would use it to teach us and train us and transform us. And we pray, God, that the truth that you bring would replace the lies that we have believed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, if you you have your Bible and you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, would really appreciate that. It's healthy for you to read along on your own uh, Bible or your own phone. Um, I don't know if you know this, but it takes multiple times of interacting with some information to understand it. Um, scientists say somewhere around five. And so if you're hearing me read, uh, that's one. And if you're looking in your Bible, that's two. And if you're taking notes, that's three ways of interacting with the truth today. They're going to further your pursuit of Jesus. So I would uh, suggest that you uh, grab one of those. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, anytime you want, you're welcome to grab one in our foyer. They're on the west side of the room. There's a little shelf and there's black Bibles there. And if you have one of those, we're going to be on page 1019. That's not a tax form. It's page 1019. All right. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then... I will know fully as I am fully known. 
Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's a, pas- a passage that many of us are familiar with. It's, it's one that's commonly requested when I officiate a wedding to be read. It sounds so awesome and so poetic, but you know what it is. It's encouraging and it's good, and I'm glad that we're studying this right now. But it's also very real and very poignant and very powerful. And it mo- needs to move from being a poem out here that's good for weddings and romantic things to truth that has a place in our heart that teaches us our pace of life today. And we're going to spend at least one more week in this chapter because it's so significant. Uh, as we do that, though, I want us to understand just clearly what love is as a theoretical concept, at least the love that we're talking about here. This, this is talking about God's love. It's a form of love that is unique to him. He holds the corner on the market for it. Uh, it's a love that generally seeks the highest good of other people, all other people, individually and specifically. And God is powerful enough and glorious enough to make that come about. Have you ever noticed sometimes that when you're seeking to love, it's hard to love two parties at the same time? Sometimes it's because they make you pick, right? Like if if you're going to love me, you can't love them. There's an exclusivity that happens there. Now clearly there's some healthy exclusivity, like let's say you're getting married. That's kind of part of the deal, right? (laughs) If if you're going to love me like this, you're not going to love anybody else like this. And, And yet at the same time, most of those choices are artificial. And one person is saying, I want to be more important than everybody else. And so they demand more, and it shuts down this sort of love. But God somehow, in his power, in his wisdom, in his knowledge, and in the fullness of his love, is able to love all people everywhere and seek their highest good. And this love is also selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional. And it's a love that persists no matter the circumstances. So in the New Testament, that's called agape, And in the Old Testament, this is often translated as loving kindness. And the Hebrew word for this is chesed. It's an abiding love that never departs. It's a self-giving love that there's always more of. What amazes me is that while God has the corner on this market, he's incredibly generous with it, right? So it says in the letter to the Corinthians that God has poured his love in our hearts, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit's presence in us. Isn't that awesome? God holds the market on this, and he's just willing to give it out over and over and over again. So God's agape love never runs out. It's a well that will never run dry. It's important for us to understand that and know that. That's why it is a, an unconditional love that persists. It's a never-ending, never-stopping, always-hoping, never-giving-up love. It's important for us to understand that as we press into this because too often we don't believe it for ourselves and then too often we don't keep giving it out to others when, they think that they, when we think that they don't deserve it. Uh, but today we're not just talking about that love. We're talking about traps that can keep us from experiencing that love and producing that sort of love in our lives. See, ultimately every human on the planet desires love and needs love to live. And we ultimately want lives that are full of love. Without love, some say that there's no life. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi said, where there is love, there is life. Not that Mahatma Gandhi was inspired, but I think that he hit something there, right? Uh, I think a song in the 80s said something like, love lifts us up where we belong. Yeah, another one, higher and higher. Uh, John Lennon famously sang and said, all you need is love, right? Like, it's like this is programmed into us. In fact, we know that infants without love, they don't thrive. In fact, they can die without love. Isn't that wild? They can have food. They can be changed. They can have movement. But without love, there's no life ultimately. And life ceases to exist. Now, as we grow, we get stronger and people can live without love, right? But you probably know people who've lived without love for a little while. What happens to them? Boy, it's not good, right? Their soul kind of gets pruny and hard, crusty and old. They get rough around the edges. They get demanding. They kind of give you the hug with the stab, right? Like, I'm so glad you're here. Why aren't you here more? You're like, whoa, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) So glad I came, maybe, you know? Uh, 
When we don't have love, there's a death that happens inside. And the problem is, is that we often give in to these traps, and they actually promise a good life, but they take away the very thing that we need for life, which is love. So we're going to talk about three traps that are common in our culture today. Uh, Paul was talking about traps with the Corinthian church, right? He brought them up in the ways that they were believing in. But the truth is, is that if I just preached only this, it, it would be a sermon for somebody else. You know, if I, if I told you not to elevate your prayer language over other people, most, most of this church would be like, what's a prayer language? And what do you mean by that? And, and while we can get into that, and, and, and maybe we should, it's usually something that's best left for small group discussions and individual discipleship, as the Corinthian church is going to find out in chapter 14, um, it's going to miss the mark for us. See, Paul says right there in 13.1, if I speak human, with human or angelic tongues, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. They were believing somehow that some spiritual gifts made them more significant than others, and we're going to lead to a better spiritual life than other spiritual gifts. And Paul's like, you're, you're wrong. You know, if you did that, if you spoke every tongue on this earth, but you didn't have love, you're like a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And he's actually bringing up a cultural symbol there. Remember that this, this word here is written to people in a specific time and place, like this sermon here is given to you in a specific time and specific place. And so the way that you started pagan worship rituals in Corinth is you had to, you know, get the gods' attention. They might be asleep or busy, and so they needed an alarm, a reminder to get the worship started. And so every worship service would begin with gongs and cymbals and bells. There wasn't rhythm. Uh, there wasn't a musicality to it. It wasn't supposed to be a fine noise. It was supposed to be a piercing noise. Uh, how many of you on your alarm clock, you have a song that you really like? You know, for me, I, I do that too. But you know what I've noticed? If I'm really sleepy, you know what happens? That song that I like, it just infiltrates my dream. And I have a really great dream for a little while. Maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. And eventually my phone gives up. It's like, it's not, the human is not responding. I'll just stop playing the song. Uh, but then on my phone, there's this noise that sounds like a submarine is about to dive. You know, it's like, rrr, rrr, rrr. if I put that on, uh, I don't last very long in my sleep. And, and, and so the, the Greeks, they knew this, even though they didn't have iPhones or Androids, they knew that the gods weren't going to wake up to a fine melody. It wasn't a lullaby that was going to raise Aphrodite to rise up and heal and deliver and do all the things they needed Aphrodite to do. So they'd get together and they'd just start pounding, pounding on the percussion instruments. And, and, and it was more like a, a kindergarten class that had just received all the instruments before the, the teacher's instructions on how to handle the kazoos and the sticks and the whirly-whirls and the jiggy-jigs and all the things that they have. And so it was just loud loud and raucous and annoying and piercing. And so Paul is saying, hey, if you go back into that, you're just going back into your old pagan worship. You're just doing things the way that you used to do them. You're falling into the old traps. God doesn't need to be woken up by your prayer language. God isn't impressed by your spiritual gifts, so suddenly he shows up. He's like, Oh, the Lord says, this human is just so amazing. I must go visit them right now because of how special they are. Is that what grace is? This is the opposite of grace, right? That's earning, not receiving. And so Paul's saying, don't go into that. We have our own versions of this, though. The first one I want to talk with you about is the performing trap. The performing trap. In the performing trap, you believe that your performance is going to lead you to the best life and the good life. It's a way of life that promises a form of satisfaction, but it's satisfaction that's found in a synthetic love substitute of which our culture has many. And this one is affirmation and positive strokes. Now, this, this is the one for me. I'm just going to be transparent. This is the one that I fall into the most as a human being. I'm wired to perform and to excel and to achieve. I really like the accolades that go along with that in my flesh. And I consistently have to lay them down for my own good. So I've gotten good at saying thank you so much for noticing. And then I try to return gratitude to God. Thanks, God, for the opportunity and the gift that led to this, right? And I also try to press past that for relationship with the one who's giving that because I know that's where life is, my connection to God and my connection to them. Life is found in the love, not in the achieving. The problem is, is that affirmation feels really good, and when you get used to it, it's kind of addictive, and you want to keep going. You like having your name on the top 10 chart. 
You like people noticing. You like people giving a thumbs up to your post. You like people saying, hey, nice, good job, good job. I see what you did there. Way to go. That was nice work. And so we have to set that down because it doesn't actually lead us to love and life. Because eventually, in God's grace, he's going to let you fail. He might even lead you to a season of failure because he knows that the synthetic form of love is making everything all about who? That's right, you. And God graciously in love says, I will not share my glory with anybody. Now what's wild is that Jesus does share his glory, but in a different way. He invites us into the type of love that he has. And then as we live that agape love, somehow our lives fill with his glory and it's awesome and powerful. But he's not going to compete with you for glory. And so he's going to graciously humble you. Some of you have experienced those gracious seasons of humbling. They don't feel gracious in the moment, do they? But in the end, you often realize, this was good for me. I was stuck on a synthetic drug of a false love, me and my success. And now I see that God's agape love is so much better. And I don't perform to earn. I perform to give and to say thank you to God and to love other people. That's why I perform. And I don't measure myself by my success. I want to be defined by grace. When we believe the lie that our performance leads us to love, we enter into the trap and we will take the cheap substitute of love, affirmation. If that's you, I would just encourage you to lay that down and leave it. It's going to be hard. You're going to go through withdrawals. You're going to be waiting for people to notice, for people to like, for people to encourage. The solution isn't just to lay it down and wait to see what happens. It's to enter into a different pace. A pace of giving rather than getting. A pace of encouraging others. A pace of gratitude. And a pace where you seek God's grace. And learn to understand God's identities for you. What they are and why they matter. What's the significance to you that you're called a child of God? What does it matter to you that you don't have to earn God's love, but that he's always willing to give it? I remember when I first discovered this, I looked at it and I went, why would anybody do anything? If you don't have to earn love, if you don't have to earn encouragement, if you don't have to earn God's respect, why even get out of bed in the morning? Can you see how much my motivation was wrapped up in this false drug? Some of you may find this same place as the place that you end up, but I promise you, the further you press into the new pace of life that's defined by God's love instead of your actions, the better and better it gets. The more motivating it becomes, there's endurance found there, there's goodness found there, there's fellowship found there, found there. There's real love found there, and it's an awesome thing. Next, I want to talk to you about the possessing trap. The possessioning trap? I'm, I can English good. Mm. Uh, the possessing trap. In the possessing trap, you are preoccupied with your possessions, with your possessions. Now, certainly we are a culture that has become defined by our possessions, right? What does your house look like? How nice, how new is your car? What clothes are you wearing? Are they in fashion? Are they out of fashion? Uh, is your body looking young still? Do you possess a young body with smooth face and tight skin and muscles? Or are there wrinkles and sags, sunspots, the sign of age? Which, by the way, the Bible calls glorious. It calls your silver hair a crown on your head, okay? So don't become discouraged by our culture or fear those things as they come up for you because those are false definitions. They're being defined, you're being defined by that point, at that point, by what you possess. What you possess is not who you are. You know this innately, but somehow we're willing to buy this trap that our possessions do define us how good does it feel when someone says, have you been losing weight? Have you been working out? Is that a new haircut? My, you're looking nice today. How nice do you feel when you're driving that new car and forget about the price? Feels amazing, right? There's a reason why we buy into retail therapy. Buying new things somehow gives us a false sense of personal renewal and hope for the future. It's like a little bit of an addiction for some of us. It's hard to let go of this pursuit of stuff. How other people see you with it, how you feel when you have it. Stuff can take lots of different forms. 
For some of us, it's food. For some of us, it's shoes. For some of us, it's our house, our zip code, our car, our makeup collection, our tool collection, our toys from our childhood and our adulthood, our movie collection, the size of our TV, the sports teams that we like. There's all sorts of things that we can hang on to for life. But the truth is, is all these things can't really give you life. They can give you momentary pleasure. But we have so many things. We have so much opulence that we can be like a frog hopping from lily pad to lily pad, denying that we're in the swamp. For a moment, just staying above. And then when that pad starts to sink, you find a new one. We've got to get off that. We've got to leave the swamp. We've got to get off the lily pads because those possessions don't really give you life. They just feel good for a moment. And while you might be able to pay for them each month, they're costing you everything. They're costing you real relationships. They're costing you real love, the very thing that your soul needs and craves. The problem is, is it's not just possessions, though. There are intangible things that we possess that we think give us life, maybe even more so. We grab onto false identities, titles, accolades, placards, achievements. And I remember as a teenager when I got my Eagle Scout Award, which, by the way, defined me big time for a long time, I got a letter from the President of the United States encouraging me and congratulating me. Wow. My head grew three sizes that day. It was like a Grinch moment, but in reverse, right? This is incredible. I got a, a letter from Washington, D.C. I mean, I'm sure a computer signed it. But still, they took the time, and it mattered to me. We possess position, and we possess privilege. We can go anywhere. I can do what I want. I have a friend whose mom was struggling with dementia a while back. And uh, in the face of that, her anger reared up. Her ego was being challenged. She was losing privilege. She was losing her personal power. And she shouted at him, I'm free, white, and 21. I can do anything I want. Wow. Yeah, she said that. That was an inside thought, right? But it came out of her. Not even a healthy inside thought. But it exposed something that almost all of us deal with. We're defined by our privilege. We're defined by our positions and what we can do and what we can get, what we can buy, the opportunities that we have. The problem is, is this doesn't really give you life. Sure, it might give you opportunities, but is there life if those opportunities are eliminated? Absolutely. Absolutely there's life if, there's, if those opportunities are eliminated. And praise the Lord that there's life when those opportunities are eliminated. I mean, otherwise, what are you going to do when you're hospitalized? Hope that you can get out? Well, certainly, but is there life in that hospital bed? Absolutely. God forbid that something tragic happens to you and you, you can't walk anymore. You can't use part of your body anymore. Are you less human? Will you have less life? Praise the Lord, the answer is no. There's deeper life than that. But for many of us, we find that these things are cataclysmic and destructive. How about the esteem and respect of others? Man, when you have that and you start to lose it, it can feel like you're losing life itself. And we set a pace of life to pursue that esteem. We set a pace of life to pursue that respect. How about your reputation? That's a possession that's hard fought. What if you lose that? Will you lose that for your faith? If you won't lose that for anything, you certainly won't lose it for your faith. What will you give up for that reputation? Genuine love. A reputation isn't genuine love. It's someone's identity for you. It's not the true identity of you. And it replaces God's love for you. You know, one of the things that we possess that's hard for us to let go of are those around us, our spouse, our children. How many adults are defined by the success of their children? I know that push. I know that feel. Man, when my, when my son hits a triple or a double in baseball, it's exhilarating. It's fun. I want to stand up and shout, that's my kid! That's my son! He just did that! But I don't, because I don't need that, and neither does he, because that's where the trap is. See, I'm teaching him I love him more when he performs, and I'm teaching me that I'm defined my, by my possession, my son who can hit the baseball hard and run the bases fast. Should that be his identity? 
Should that be where I live my life? Absolutely not. But it's so tempting to do that. And not just with our little kids, with our adult kids too, right? It feels really good when our adult kids get the promotion, get the raise, buy the new house, are doing everything right. And it feels really bad when our adult kids are not doing those things, when they become the prodigal, when they become addicted, when they become distant and estrange their family. We don't want these things to define us, but we're willing to buy in in the moment that that's where life is, that that's where love is. The problem is it's just another trap. It doesn't lead us to life. It just leads us to good feelings in the moment. We think these things are the means of life, so they're what we pursue. When we think the possessions are what give us life, we pursue those possessions. We also think that they're the meaning of life. When we have them, we want to keep them. We want more, we want bigger, and we want better. Always. You're susceptible to this. Our culture knows it. You notice how much shame is in advertising and how much desire is there too? I mean, think about a car commercial. What is that car going to do for you according to the car commercial? Holy cow, everything. You are going to be so awesome when you own an electric vehicle. I mean, you're going to be like George Jetson. The world will be your oyster if you could just plug in your car instead of have to go to the gas tank. But there's so many things that are that way. I mean, bubblegum promises you a better love life. Lipstick promises you respect. A facelift, look out, your life is about to go up and look up. It's been happening your whole life, and you can buy it. And so we pursue it. And then finally, there's the producing trap. Paul says it, the Corinthians fell into it. He says, and if I give my life over, if I give everything to the poor, if I give my life to be burned, if I produce everything for others, that's where life is really found. Isn't this the ultimate hero in secular humanism? The one who gives their life up for the sake of humanity? They're on the board of the animal shelter. They're giving to the educational foundation. They volunteer everywhere, every day. Their whole life is spent giving life to others. The problem with the producing trap is that it sets a life filled with love in the unreachable future. After I do this, I will have it. When I get through this season, I will possess it. But it's not just the hero for the culture at large. You become the hero for your family, for your kids, for your neighborhood. You give everything for them. You give your life over to your life's work so that your family can have what they want. Not just what they need, but what they want and what they want in abundance. You give your life for your work so that you can get to the golden age of retirement where there's really life. Retirees, how's that working out? I mean, honestly, right? We still have to push and we still have to plan and we still have to pursue because it's not just enough to have a house at the coast, the RV that you can go anywhere with, the boat and the fishing gear that gets you where you want, the card game with your girlfriends, the meals out. There needs to be something more. You know why? Because it's not love, and it will never be there, and it will never satisfy your soul. The golden age of retirement is not found in an abundance of possessions, but a wisdom of the heart, where you realize what is most important, and your pace of life actually matches that. And how blessed are you if you figure that out before you quit working? Because your whole life will be transformed from that moment on. Too often we set good life as something that will happen in the future. It's just a busy season. It's just a season of sickness. It's just a season of sorrow. It's just such a full summer. You know, most of us are busy because we just like being busy. Some of us are chronically sick because, well, that's how we know to be and we're best cared for then. I'm not trying to push where I don't belong, by the way. <laughs> I, I love you and so does Jesus, but we, we need to identify these idols and we need to stop worshiping them so that we find the love that we need <laughs> and we live in the relationship that's most important. Paul's clear. Performing, possessing, and producing without love lead to nothing. Performing. 
If I speak human or angelic tongues, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Possessing. If I have all faith, if I know all mysteries, if I understand all knowledge, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Producing. If I give away all my possessions and I give my body over to love in order to, or my body over in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. The traps have always been there. They just take on different forms. They shift generationally, but they're still there. Performing, possessing, and producing without love lead to nothing. And I need to be very clear with you. When you believe these lies, despite the fact that you think you're going to move forward in life, you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Because you don't want to go to life back to the life that you had before. That's the reason why you believe the trap. But the thing that you're doing to produce life, to gain love, it will never get you there. You're stuck. And you need to shift. You need to move over into something different. Because performing, possessing, and producing lead to a pace of life that rob you of the time and opportunities that you have to cultivate love, to cultivate what matters most. Chip Ingram regarding this says this. He says, many of us live very hurried, overextended, complex lives with shallow, superficial relationships, even with our closest friends and families, because we have unconsciously learned to believe that performing well, possessing much, and providing stuff is what life is all about. But it's just simply not. Paul says to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Pressing into Christ knowing Christ, walking with Christ. And then he says, when this life is over, it's all gain, because I'll have Christ most fully. The means of gaining the pace of love are Jesus, is Jesus. Jesus is the way that we gain the pace of love. If you're a disciple of Jesus, or you're somebody who's believed in Jesus, Jesus is saying to you the same thing he is saying to the religious people of the first century. He's saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart. And he says, and I will give you rest for your souls. These traps are exhausting. They grind people down. They spit people out. They burn you up and they burn you out. They don't provide the things that you need for life but they sure glimmer and glisten along the way, don't they? And Jesus is inviting you into a better way. If you don't know Jesus yet, Jesus is offering you salvation today. He says, you will never get what your soul deeply needs from the things this world is offering you. He says, instead, call out to me for salvation. He says, today is the day of your salvation. He says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can put your faith in Jesus today. He will give you life everlasting. And he will give you life everlasting that starts now. And he will start to cultivate in you through his Holy Spirit, through his community, the love that your soul is designed to thrive on. See, the human life that is without Jesus has been putting the wrong fuel in the tank. The engine has been running rough, even if it doesn't know it. And when you believe in Jesus, the tank gets empty the engine gets replaced, and you get filled up with that which actually is required by you for running well, the spirit of the living God and the truth of the living God. Today is the day that you can put your faith in Jesus, that you can discover the love that will ultimately transform your life so that it is the best life, the eternal life, the heavenly life. All it takes is that moment of recognition and decision I'm turning away from these traps and I'm turning towards Jesus. I'm believing Jesus, just Jesus for salvation. I don't need those things. I only need him. The pace of love is the best pace of life. It's the pace of an even better life. You know, our constitution guarantees the pursuit of happiness. You'll notice that it doesn't guarantee the results of happiness. What's amazing to me is that as I pursue Jesus, I find that happiness is almost 100% guaranteed. See, sometimes I don't pursue. Sometimes I pursue those traps for a moment, for a day, for a week, 
And then I wake up and I realize, no, 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 that's not life. It's not an achievement, Chris Garrison. Achievement won't lead you to life. Resting in Jesus, that leads you to life. That leads you to love. What do you need to change today to reset your pace of life so that it's the pace of love? Do you need to put down achievement? Do you need to say, it's not about who I was, it's not about what I'm accomplishing, it's not about what I do, but it's about the one who did everything for me and his love for me and his walk with me. Do you need to give up the trap of possessing? Is what you own owning you? Are those plaques on the wall, those titles that you've achieved, the respect that you found, the thing that gives you life? If so, you're in a place of danger. There's no life there. The bridge is out. Turn back before it's too late. Turn to Jesus today. Is what you produce for others, giving to them the place where you've found the most life? Do you feel best when you're serving? Is that your motivation? I've said that before. I feel so good when I'm serving until I'm exhausted and tired and burned out and quitting. Giving away your possessions isn't where life is. It might be good for you. It's not where life is. Finding Jesus and being possessed by him is where life is. Is your pace of life driving you to things that aren't good? Are you exhausted and weary and broken? There's good news. You can learn the pace of love from the one who's defined love. And you can have love and your soul can be enriched and blossoming and be filled with the life that you so deeply crave. Turn to Jesus today. Turn to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you so graciously pour your love out on us. Not because we earn it, not because we can buy it, not because we've worked so hard, but because you love, and you love first. Father, this world wants to teach us ways of living that seek to give us happiness and life, but we know, God, that they don't. Father, for the ways that we bought into the lies, would you forgive us? Would you lead us to produce fruit with you in keeping with repentance, letting go of the things that have drug us into places that we don't want to be? Would you lead us to disillusionment with them? Would you help us to see you and the offer of salvation that you give us today? Lord, we pray that you would take away our possessing and our achieving and our producing and that you would give us rest in you and that you would teach us the way of love, the way of life. We thank you, God, that love is the highest good. And we thank you that your love is the best love. In Jesus' name, amen.